Remember that our Lord Jesus can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, 
since in every respect he was tempted as we are, and yet he was without sin. Our weaknesses extend to everything in our life. He was truly human and experienced all these things, but especially our wrestling with sin and being tempted. And he was tempted, and yet he didn't sin. Let us then with boldness approach the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of trouble. Let us confess our sin against God and against our neighbor. Let us pray. O Lord God, eternal and almighty Father, we confess and acknowledge before your holy majesty that we poor sinners were conceived and born in iniquity and corruption, prone to do evil, and that in our depravity we have transgressed your holy commandments over and over again. Nevertheless, O Lord, we are sorry that we have offended you, and we deplore our sins with true repentance, asking for your grace to relieve our distress. Have mercy on us, our Father, in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you blot out our sins, strengthen and increase in us day by day the grace of your Holy Spirit, that as we acknowledge our unrighteousness, we may be moved by that sorrow which brings forth true repentance in us, putting to death all our sins, and producing in us the fruits of righteousness and innocence, which are pleasing to you, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Hear the good news. Who is in a position to condemn us? Only Jesus Christ. That ultimate judgment and condemnation, only Jesus Christ can do that. And he has died for us. He rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ intercedes for us. There is in Christ a new creation. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. And this is the good news of the gospel. We say together, praise be to God. Beloved people of God, the apostolic instruction to the church is to put on as God's chosen ones compassion. We're to be compassionate to others because Jesus Christ is full of compassion. If we have been united to Christ through faith and by the Holy Spirit, then we are united to the one who is full of compassion, and we are to exhibit and act with compassion. We've been united with him. When Jesus saw the crowds of people running after him along the shore who had nothing to eat, he had compassion on them. And another time, when he met the widow of Nain, whose son had died, Jesus had compassion on her. The compassion that we put on in Christ is a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. Christ transforms our heart from callousness toward others into loving concern for them. Those in need may be unpleasant to our senses, but the compassion of Christ that we are given overrides that, that sense of repulsion that we might feel. We want to help them because of Christ who has filled our heart with compassion. Christ also cleanses us of any sense of superiority where we might stop and think, well, I'm better than that person. That person is uh, really just an abject failure. We might just pull back and dismiss them that way, but Christ will not let us do that because he has come to us who were abject failures and he's had compassion on us. 
Just as Christ has been compassionate to our great needs, so we are to be compassionate to those in need, whatever their needs may be. For this is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 607, Thy loving kindness, Lord, is good and free. Let us pray for all those in need. Let us pray. Almighty God, who in Jesus has loved us with your everlasting love, we give you thanks and praise. We thank you for our creation and how you've preserved us and all the blessings of this life, for our fellowship together in Christ, our new life together, for the abundant material goods we have received, for the good of family and for the freedom to worship you. But above all, we thank you for your your immeasurable love in the redemption of the world from its sin by our Lord Jesus Christ. And for the means of grace, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, the fellowship of the church, the privilege and responsibility of praying in Christ's name to you, we thank you for all these means of your grace and for the hope that you will set all things right. We praise you for who you you are. You are indeed the God of our salvation. You are our creator and redeemer. And so we depend upon you and wait upon you always. 
Make us, we pray, to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths, the paths of life. Make us wise by giving us knowledge of your creation so that we might know how to live according to how you have ordered your creation. Teach us Christian discipline and self-control so that we may live as followers of Christ and be mindful of all that he endured and sacrificed for our sakes and how he was perfectly obedient through his sufferings. Cause us to live out that identity that you've given us in baptism. Your name is upon us, and may we live as your children. Give us strength for the battle of sin and grace to resist temptation and fear. Guide and bless your church, O Lord. Lead us in the way of the cross. Deliver us from the sins with which we struggle. Hear our prayers, O God. We pray for all who labor in service to Christ, not only in this land, but throughout the world. And especially this morning, we remember and pray for David Noe and Reformation OPC in Grand Rapids, for Mike, McCam and, uh, Mike McCabe and Sam Fulta with their families in Asia, and also Hiro Hakobor and his family in Ukraine. Here are prayers for them. For our neighbors, we pray, friends and family who ignore Christ, who have no faith in him, even deny that he is the Lord and Savior of the world. Give them ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us opportunities to speak with them of the great things you have done through Christ and how he's Lord of heaven and earth. Hear our prayers. We pray for our nation. Keep us safe. May those who govern us work together to make fair and just laws. Deliver us from ideologies that promise what they cannot deliver. We pray for Joe Biden, our president, for our senators, Debbie Stabenow and Gary Peters, for Gretchen Whitmer, our governor, for all who serve as judges in our land. We pray for them, and we pray for order and peace in our nation. Hear our prayers. Guide, direct, and govern the affairs of this world to your appointed end. May there be a lasting peace and just government in those lands where there is war and strife. And we pray this, especially we think now of uh, of Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We also remember Syria and Iran, Afghanistan, Myanmar, many of the nations in Central America, the area around Palestine and Israel, North Korea. We pray for the Uyghur people in China. In our cities, we pray for so many places where violence has increased. Bring to justice those who kill civilians and commit atrocities. And may people in our country treat each other with respect. We also pray you would stop the sex trade in our nation. Hear us all as we pray for the needs of this world and for our own nation. Remember, heal, and strengthen your people, our Father. Hear our petitions for Jeff and Fawn Bartoski, for Eduardo and Terry, Becky and the Kelly family, Jacqueline, Karen, Mrs. Mesner, Chris Barker, Tom, Phil, Bill, and those we name in silence.
Comfort the grieving and the faint of heart in the midst of the sorrows and difficulties of the world. Heal the ailing. Grant that by the power of the Holy Spirit they may go upon their way rejoicing. And if the end of their life has come, we pray that they would hold fast in faith to Jesus Christ. And we pray that in whatever state we are in, in whatever state our friends and members are are in, that they would continually give thanks for the victory of Christ over our sin and the powers of this world. Holy Father, we thank you for giving us those who have been who have taken care of us, who have parented us, who have helped us mature and grow in, in living in this world. We pray that we would always be grateful for the good things that we have received from them. And we beseech you, finally, for the things we need as your congregation, enough money to do the work to which you have called us, to maintain the fellowship that we have together as your family, that we would be able to cross the distance that separates us and for contact with new people and more people be added to your church. Help us, O Lord, to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Receive our petitions in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have provided for us your word, and we now pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and make this word alive to us, for indeed it is our life. We pray that you would show by uh, the authority of your word the certainty of your promises that have made become yes to us in Christ, that we may follow him with uh, joy all our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament reading begins in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first nine verses. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Our Psalter response is in the bulletin. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast, in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. We hear now our epistle reading in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And finally, our gospel reading in Mark. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. Because we have resumed listening to the Gospel of Mark, we resumed it last week. We've, I've been preaching <clears throat> sermons through the Gospel of Mark, but we stopped to observe the big events of Christ's life throughout the church year. So we've returned back to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 12. But I want to take a moment to remind you again of where we are in the Gospel, because it's been a few months since we um, have been here. Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on his way to die on the cross. Now, in our lesson this morning, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. He's been there for a while in terms of the Gospel of Mark. He's been around the temple where he judged the Jewish leaders. And the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders has not subsided. The groups of Jewish leaders all came against Jesus. Each group, it's interesting, each group shows up and it makes an appearance in the Gospel. The Pharisees, the priests, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And in our text, Jesus is approached by one scribe. The opposition to Jesus reached a climax when he entered Jerusalem. So there were run-ins and there were disputes and and, and uh, conflict before Jesus got to Jerusalem. But here, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, uh, there's, there's a definite heightening of that conflict. The church in this world is not above our Lord, and we continue to face opposition to Jesus. He faced it in this world, and we face it as his people, as his followers. Now, we might become embroiled in conflicts against the Christian faith. God knows Christians have often jumped into these 
controversies and conflicts that we face with both, both fists swinging. However, if we keep the stories in this section of Mark together, where we are, we learn that something larger is happening with Jesus than just mere conflicts. So we can key in on the conflicts, but we need to appreciate the bigger, uh, bigger message that's happening here. Jesus entered the city with the crowds on their way to celebrate the Feast of Passover. He entered Jerusalem, and if you remember the stories, he cursed the fig tree that represented Israel because Israel did not bear the fruit of faith, prayer, and forgiveness according to Jesus Christ. Jesus disrupted the money changers and animal sellers in the court of the, of the Gentiles in the temple, and thus he interrupted the activity of the sacrifices. And yet, the Lord's conflict with the Jewish leaders and his, his judgment is for salvation, and that might be the part that we miss. And yet, it's right there in this section. Jesus' parable of the tenants in the vineyard brings his judgment to a head, but it's part of God's purpose, as we learn in that parable, to expand his salvation to the Gentiles. Now, for their part, the Jewish leaders were against Jesus. They did not believe he was the Son of God, and consequently they challenged his authority. Mark tells us the Jewish leaders were seeking to arrest Jesus and put him to death. So there's a quick little summary of where we are. Conservative, reformed Christians are known for their willingness to dispute, argue, and expose bad theology, or at least what they think is bad theology. Now, to be fair, it's not only Reformed Christians who do this. Baptists, Lutherans, non-denominational Christians, others have done the same. Even Catholics can be combative. But I am a Reformed, uh, in a Reformed church, so are you, if you didn't know that. And I'm preaching to Reformed Christians, so I'm going to focus on the Reformed here. Ever since the theological battles in the 1920s, if you've done any reading about Machen and what was going on in the mainline Presbyterian Church at the time, ever since that time, the OPC has been on guard against weak doctrine or theology that upends the Orthodox faith of the church. We're actually kind of known for being on guard against that. Sometimes we come off uh, like we are the bulldogs of right theology, and sometimes we often churn on each other um, and, and fight about it. We can be aggressive and argumentative. It's not that we do that all the time, but sometimes we do. I saw a book the other day with the title Humble Calvinism. Caught my eye. The subtitle is, If I Know the Five Points of Calvinism but Have Not Love... Dot, dot, dot. And you know what he's doing, what the writer's doing there. He's playing off of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I haven't read the book, so you might run out and read the book and go, oh, I don't know about this. And I haven't read it, but it's an intriguing title. That's what caught my attention. We can lack humility and charity in our efforts to defend faithful Orthodox Christian theology. We can, do the right, we, can, we can do something that's right for the wrong reason. Now, in our lesson, a scribe comes to Jesus, and we know Jesus, or at least we've been hearing the good news about Jesus. These sermons are all dedicated. My entire preaching career, any, any faithful preaching in the church, is dedicated to drawing your faith to Christ and focusing you on him. If you've been listening to the preaching in this church, you know Jesus. The scribes may be a different matter. 
their position originated with Ezra. Remember Ezra in the Old Testament? Their position arose with him. He transcribed the law of Moses for the Jews when they came back to Jerusalem at the end of the exile. The scribes meticulously copied the scripture. They were readers in the synagogues and they handled official documents. They were also leaders of the Jews and they could be elected to the council of the Sanhedrin. Now in the Gospel of Mark, the scribes are usually working alongside the Pharisees. It was the scribes who asserted that Jesus had a demon in Mark chapter 3. It was the scribes, along with the Pharisees, who challenged Jesus for eating with sinners and tax collectors. It was the scribes and the Pharisees who reproached Jesus for allowing his disciples to eat grain with unclean hands. It was the scribes who were arguing with the disciples about the demon-possessed boy when Jesus came down the mountain after his transfiguration. When Jesus began to foretell his death in Jerusalem, he mentions the scribes and the chief priests and the elders as those who would have him killed. After Jesus entered Jerusalem, Mark tells us that the chief priests and the scribes heard that Jesus had disrupted the temple worship and they sought a way to destroy him. That's in Mark chapter 11. And the scribes did not pull back after Jesus' encounter with this one scribe in our lesson. They didn't pull back all of a sudden. Jesus denounces their behavior in the marketplace, and the scribes, for their part, continue to plot Jesus' death. So do you get a picture of the scribes, at least how they were operating in relationship to Jesus? As a rule, the scribes were against Jesus. Now, central to our text this morning, Jesus binds right theology with the practice of love. Or to put it in a more academic manner, Jesus joins theology and ethics together, Christian theology, Christian ethics together. But this was no off-the-cuff question from the scribe, and the question really didn't even start with Jesus. It didn't start right here in this, this meeting between Jesus and the scribe. It was already a topic of discussion before Jesus began his ministry. The rabbis asked this question before the scribes scribe asked Jesus, They wanted to know which commandment is the first of all. Now, with all the laws in the Torah, and there are something like 618 or something, you can see them, look it up online, and there's a big list. The rabbis were trying to determine which law was the basic principle from which all the other laws were derived. The law of God can be used in many different ways. Just because it's a law of God can't, doesn't mean it can't be used in different ways. Legalism is one way to use the law. Creating boundaries between people. Self-righteousness. All these are different ways of using the law. What is the basic principle that underlies the law, the laws of God? That's what the rabbis were discussing even before this meeting with Jesus. In other words, which law directed all the others? The laws in the Old Testament do not just sit there side by side. Sometimes a choice has to be made about which one takes precedence. So years ago, when I first came back to Michigan, I met a Jewish man who was an evangelist for the Orthodox Jewish community. It's very interesting talking to this guy. He's an evangelist for, this is how he introduced, he he explained himself, evangelist for the Orthodox Jewish community. He was trying to win over Jewish people who had lapsed or had become secular. And the key idea there is Jewish people. He wasn't interested in trying to evangelize me, but to get the Jewish people who had lapsed or become secular to come back to the Orthodox Jewish faith. 
He agreed, we, we had a, a I, I helped him out, he agreed to meet with me at a kosher Coney Island in Oak Park. Ironically, I live right around the corner from it today. Only after I met him there did I discover that it was the Feast of Sukkot, which is the Feast of Booths. This is in like late September. And he was required to eat in one of the temporary shelters outside, per the, book, per the law for the Feast of, of uh, Booths in Leviticus 23. So that law says that they're to eat in these dwellings. And so they've uh, worked out a way today to do that. But it means outside with walls, but it's all open air, basically. I mean, the air is just flowing through. It just has a sense of a shelter um, on it. And he had to eat uh, out there, out of doors. So we ordered our food, and we sat in the shelter outside while I shivered, asking him questions, and we conversed. I had not thought about bringing a jacket. It was brisk and cold that day, but I didn't think about bringing it because I figured we'd eat inside, right? Because I'm not Jewish. <clears throat> but we ate outdoors. We ordered our food. We talked for a while, but I was literally shivering, and just my teeth were chattering the whole time. Finally, he extended mercy to me, which, by the way, is commanded by other laws in the Old Testament. Zechariah, 9, or Zechariah 7, verse 9 says show mercy to people. It's a command. So he told me he was willing to break the Sukkot law, which required him to eat out in the in the that dwelling, for my well-being. And we went inside. So you see you have two laws there that come into conflict, or not really conflict, but are both, uh, can't both be observed, eating outside during the Feast of Sukkot or showing mercy. And he chose the one, showing mercy to me. Now, Christians have also wrestled with the potential conflict between two laws in a particular case. A famous example of that uh, involves a couple laws. The law of God that says you shall not murder, right? You shall not murder. It also says you shall not bear false witness and lie. So, here's a scenario, and these, this did happen. In Nazi Germany, there were Christians who hid Jewish people from the Nazi uh, agents, If the German agents knocked on the door and asked if there were any Jews in the house, should the Christians lie, knowing the Jews would be sent to death camps? So, was there a law that functioned as a basic principle for all the others? It's interesting listening to the translations, because they they have to wrestle with this. What what is the word that you use? What is the... The uh, first commandment, I think, is, is the way it's put in uh, ESV. Um, but I noticed this morning um, it said it a little bit differently. And we have to ask ourselves, what is this asking? Is there a law that functions as a basic principle? I think that's the best way to understand it for all the others. And many of the rabbis back in the days of Jesus and before Jesus said, yes, there is a, basic, a law that reflects the basic principle of all the others. It was believed that the law of Moses was not a haphazard collection of laws like coins in a can. They're just kind of all thrown in there together and you pull out the one you need at the right time. There was a center to the law and the rabbis debated what that was. And then they didn't all agree. There's a story about a Gentile who challenged Rabbi Hillel in the first century. The Gentile said, make me a proselyte on condition that you teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. Rabbi Hillel said, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to your neighbor. That's the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. So that's what Rabbi Hillel thought. It's basically the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. 
The commandment to love God with your whole person from Deuteronomy 6 was already considered the greatest by many, is that basic, basic principle law. Um, already many had already said that. Jesus entered the conversation about which law was the greatest, and his answer declared, declared the, the great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus wasn't the first to join these two commandments together. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. He wasn't the first to put those together. There's, there are a lot of other writings and a lot of other Jewish writings um, that we don't include in our Bible that were um, considered at least wisdom, if not actually scripture, by some of the Jews. And there's, there's a collection of some of those called the Twelve Patriarchs, um, the Twelve Sons of, um, of uh, Jacob. And the test, there's one of them called the Testament of Issachar. Issachar was one of those sons. And it says it was probably written in the last century before Jesus' birth. So in the, at the end of the before Christ time, um, before his birth. And it says, love the Lord and your neighbor and be compassionate toward poverty and sickness. So already there were Jews who were putting these two together. What we must hear in the story is that Jesus binds these two commandments together for us. We have a particular interest in what Jesus is saying because he is our Lord and Savior, because we follow him. So others may have said this and put these together for other reasons, but Jesus puts them together, and we need to pay attention to that. Regardless of who said it first, Jesus taught it, and we follow him. Now, Christian theology has taken Jesus' answer as a summary of all that God requires of us. So that's one way this has been used. Our Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Confession, Shorter Catechism, asks this question. It's question 42. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? Notice how they're defining that word, sum. And it gives the answer. The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. It's exactly what Jesus said. So think of it this way. The Ten Commandments are a summary of God's moral requirements for us. And these are further summarized in the two commandments, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. So the first part, you might say the first table of the Ten Commandments concerns love of God. The second part of the Ten Commandments concerns love of your neighbor. So all of this is to say that the basic underlying principle for how we act toward God and towards others is love. It's love that God reveals to us through Jesus Christ. Love that is a relationship that seeks the good of the other. The foundation for love of God and love for others is God's love for us. And so then we come to our epistle lesson, 1 John chapter 4. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So John is putting that love of God as the basis for our love of one another. Now, by pronouncing the two great commands and joining them together for us, Jesus binds together love for God and love for others. He binds them together so that they should not be taken apart. It's not one or the other. Our love for God, wanting to listen to his word, to know him better, to ponder the deep things of God's truth, to pray to him, all these things must not be separated from loving others. 
At the same time, Christian love for others, which might be wanting to help them, provide for their needs, encourage them to mature, that cannot be separated from love for God. So you see Christ has put these two together. They're not to be separated. Following Christ, it's not all about, loving God's not all about reading our Bibles and worshiping God and getting into hot theological disputes, except for the hot theological disputes. Those things are, are important and necessary. I think we need to watch it a little bit on the hot theological disputes. But reading our Bibles, worshiping God, all of that is absolutely critical and necessary for being a Christian. But that's not what it's all, it's not just about that. Neither is it all about just helping the poor, seeking justice, feeding the hungry. The first commandment to love the Lord your God is first, but it's not without the second. You see, Jesus puts them together and they're to stay together. Jesus included the second with the first. Now, what made Jesus' answer to the scribe unique was not that he said this first, but that Jesus said it. Jesus is the one who said this, and it's Jesus who said it. So let's think about Jesus for a minute. Jesus is the one who fulfilled these two commandments. People can run around and say all kinds of things. The rabbis could say this, but they didn't fulfill these commandments. Jesus fulfilled the commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he did this on a couple of different levels. There's a couple different ways of thinking about how Jesus fulfilled these commandments. On one level, Jesus perfectly obeyed God. He submitted to God's will in all things. And by doing this, he fulfilled God's righteousness. Jesus can even be called the righteousness of God because he, he perfectly fulfilled God's righteousness. Our confession, confession puts it in terms of keeping the law. Jesus kept God's law. He didn't break it. Now, sometimes uh, he revealed to the Jews that God's law meant more than they thought it did. For example, he taught them that the commandment, you shall not kill, goes beyond the physical act of murder. It goes to the heart. But I say to you, Jesus said, that everyone who is angry with his brother and insults his brother and calls him a fool shall be liable to judgment. Jesus kept God's law completely. And since the law is summed up in love, Jesus kept God's law, and Jesus kept God's law, then Jesus loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. You see? That's one way to work at it. Jesus kept the law. The law summed up in love. Jesus loved God with all his, his whole being. Jesus fulfilled the basic principle of the law, which is love of God and is with his whole being. On another level, Jesus fulfilled the law to love his neighbor. And who is his neighbor? Let's stop and think for a minute. Who is his neighbor? Us. We're God's neighbor. Our epistle lesson says Jesus regard others more highly. Well, it's not our epistle lesson. I was thinking about it being our epistle lesson. It's Philippians chapter 2. Jesus regarded others more highly than himself. He humbled himself for our sake. And what does our sake mean? It means for our good. Jesus humbled himself for our good. We need to be saved from our sin and God's judgment. We need to be delivered from the old life of sin and evil. Jesus offered himself to do just that for us, to save us and to deliver us. So the apostle says in his letter to the Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin so that he might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he was willing to enter into our sinful condition, our sinful existence in order to make us, <coughs> excuse me, make us become the righteousness of God. So if you think of it this way, we are Jesus' neighbors and he loved us. 
Jesus acted in love for God and for us, and by doing that, he fulfilled these commandments. Jesus reveals to us what love is. And if anybody needs to know what love is, it's us Americans. Love has become all twisted up for us in this society. Often what we hear about, uh, what we hear about love in our society is an expression of an intense personal desire. The word love is used to express a hunger for something or a strong preference for something. So we can talk about, I can say to my wife, I, I love you, and then I can say I love Domino's Pizza. We don't really discriminate the word very well. Um, one writer I was reading talked about how in the Greek language there are four, maybe more, but at least four ways of talking about love, four different kinds of love. It's, it's broken down, it's described, and they're different. It, it indicates different things. We don't really do that in the English language. Closest we can come to that is I like versus I love. But when we want to express an intense desire, we say we love something. So I love Domino's Pizza. I love Florida beaches. And when it comes to relationships, people say they love someone as long as the feeling lasts. Jesus reveals that love is not fundamentally a feeling. It's an act. Love is something you do for someone else for their good. And that involves self-sacrifice. See, don't we see that with Jesus? He does something for us that's for our good, and it involves the sacrifice of himself. You're learning about love when you look at Jesus. We see love when a father and a mother, we do see examples of this in a small way in our world, when a mother or a father sacrifice their dreams, their careers, their time for their children. You see a little bit of this kind of love. Jesus sacrificed himself for the good of our salvation, much more than just that we have a happy life. And that's the greatest love for us that we'll ever have. Love is generous. It's self-sacrificing and it's generous. It gives to others more than it takes for itself. Jesus generously gives to us. He gives all the benefits of his work of salvation. What are those benefits? Well, justification, adoption, sanctification, the inheritance of eternal life with God, and on it goes. Love is self-sacrifice, love is generous, love is humble. Humility is not asserting yourself over someone else. There may be disagreement, but love does not bully or try to make oneself look better than the other person. And again, if we go back to Philippians chapter 2, we hear that Jesus was humbled. He humbled himself for us. He didn't come to bully the Jewish leaders. He came with a mission to save us, and he didn't back down from that mission when he was challenged. Maybe we could even say when he was attacked. He didn't back down from that. And Jesus was willing to call out false worship and unbelief, but he never bullied or arrogantly asserted himself over some, anyone else. Jesus reveals to us what love of God and love of neighbor means in its fullest meaning. So we can hear what he says where he puts love of God and love of the neighbor together and binds them together, but we also need to realize that Jesus reveals to us what that love looks like, what it is. Now Jesus directs us to love the Lord our God and love our neighbor. We should hear a call to us to, do, to obey these commands. And even with this direction, we learn something about his love. Jesus encouraged the scribe that by affirming Jesus' teaching, which the scribe did, right, he was on the way to the kingdom of God. 
And yet, who was the scribe? Let's go back to what the scribes were that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon. He was among those, he's a scribe, he's among those who were the enemies of Jesus. Jesus loved his enemies. Now, at first, it doesn't occur to us that the scribe is an enemy of Jesus, even though the Gospel of Mark makes it clear the scribes were plotting Jesus' death. If you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, you, you would have a clear picture of who the scribes were. And so here comes the scribe. Uh-oh. It doesn't occur to us that the scribe is an enemy because he responds well to Jesus' answer, and Jesus encourages him. Ponder this. Jesus, by his act of love toward the scribe, provoked the scribe's favorable response. It doesn't always happen that way in the gospel. Jesus' answers also provoked hatred from some of the Jewish leaders. But when there is a favorable response from someone, is that because of their own predisposed love of Jesus? Or is it because Jesus' love causes them to love him? Those who have not responded in love to Jesus have not had his love penetrate into their hearts and minds. And that's where we begin to ask questions and we have a mystery and we wonder, why not? But when we have someone who responds with love for Jesus, who's part of the enemy, that's because Christ's love encountered them first. Jesus loved his enemies. You were his enemy. At one time, we were all turned against God, but he loved you. Jesus has spoken his word to you. And you all have questions for Jesus, and you all have troubles, and Jesus answers you. He does. It's not necessarily the kind of answers that you were looking for, but he answers you all the same. Today, whatever your questions and concerns are, he answers you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might, and love your neighbors yourself. It's the Lord speaking to you, answering your questions. You might walk away saying, well, that's not it. I have these other questions. I want to know about this and that. I'm, I'm upset about this. That's his answer to you today. Affirm Jesus' love for you and act with the love that is for God and your neighbor. Let us pray. Keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in your steadfast faith and love, that throughout your grace, that through your grace, we may proclaim your truth with boldness and act with love filled with humility and generosity and compassion for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, who do reign with you our Father, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made. 
who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 423, according to thy gracious word. is the Lord's table where we are met and nourished by the risen Lord and where we have true fellowship with one another as co-members of this one body. Co-members sounds sort of dry, doesn't it? Brothers and sisters in the Lord, community, family of Christ. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We do welcome to this table all who have been baptized, who have professed publicly, professed faith publicly in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members in good standing of the Christian church. You are to come to this table with a true faith in Jesus Christ, a sorrow for and willingness to turn from sin, and a determination in reliance upon God's grace to lead a godly life in peace with and love towards your brothers and sisters. Christian people, today we have been reminded that Jesus Christ fulfills the love of God for love, love of God for us and for others and reveals this love to us. This day we have confessed our sins, we have received God's forgiveness and heard God's call to live in love. As you come to the supper, I exhort you to remember the grace that is yours in him and strengthened by the sacrament, we are to love with the love of Christ. And come to this meal with joy. Rejoice in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, be strengthened by his gifts, and find you the grace you need to follow where he leads. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Father, you made the world and you love your creation. You have blessed it and given it what it needs. You gave your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior, which is the greatest gift we will ever receive. His dying and rising has set us free from sin and death, and so we gladly thank you with the whole communion of saints, along with the host in heaven, praising you, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. We praise and bless you, loving Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we obey his command, by your Holy Spirit, may our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup be for us a communion in the body and blood of your dear Son. Father, we remember all that Jesus did, his, his incarnation, his service on earth, his death, rising to new life, ascending to your right hand, pouring out upon us the Holy Spirit. In him we plead with confidence his sacrifice once and for all upon the cross. And with the bread of life and the cup of your salvation, we proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes in glory. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. Lord of life, help us to work together to bear witness to that day when your kingdom comes and justice and mercy will be seen in all the earth. Look with favor on your people, gather us in your loving arms, and bring us with all your holy people to feast at your table in heaven. Through Christ and with Christ and in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory are yours, O loving Father, forever and ever. And we offer our thanksgiving with one voice, and we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood shed for you, given for you, and receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he bore our sin, gave us grace, opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup show others the true vine. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the faith you have set before us so that we and all your children shall be free. And the whole earth live to praise your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 388, Christ of all my hopes the ground.
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Really just a few quick announcements. Um, it's kind of a quiet week this week. Uh, we have uh, today we are uh, blessed to have our fellowship meal together. Um, so please plan on staying and joining that time of fellowship and, and uh, food and food and we'll go from there. Um, also uh, just uh, keep an eye on the things coming up in the following week. Women's prayer meeting on July 13th. Uh, and then uh, also just continue to be in prayer for the uh, needs of the congregation. I know the Kelly family would continue, would, would appreciate your continued prayers. So. Yes, and I, I just want to thank you for your prayers and cards and condolences uh, and for those of you who were able to head up and visit from the time funeral. It was a great comfort to the family and uh, much appreciated. Thank you. And, of course, it's good to see Ben and Courtney here as well. So thank you for being here this morning. Deneen. The prayer meeting this month is on a Wednesday. It's not a Thursday, just to make that note. Oh. Ooh. Tricky. Whoa. Tricky, tricky. So, yes, the women's prayer meeting is not on Thursday the 14th. It's on Wednesday the 13th at our house, at, at Deneen's house. right? Okay. All right. Um, let's go ahead and uh, break. Thank you.